Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Alfonso Sanchez Moya is a discourse analyst currently employed at Amazon. He earned a PhD in English Linguistics in Spain and did postdoctoral work at Harvard and at Universidad Complutense de Madrid. He is particularly interested in online discourse and multimodal communication, mostly looking at connections between language, ideology, power, and identity. He is also interested in digital discourse and communication as key components of online education, fields he has been involved with in professional terms for the last 10 years. Topics covered include success in grad school, discourse analysis, nonlinear paths, digital discourse, resumes, bilingual education, and NLP. Links to Alfonso's LinkedIn profile and his website are in the show notes. Welcome, Alfonso. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today for this podcast. Um, Listeners to the podcast will know that Alfonso appeared on a previous episode when we did our special live event. And uh, you had such amazing things to say that I thought it was super important that you come back and we devote a whole episode to you. So that's what we're going to do today. (laughs) Well, thank you, Laurel. Um, It's a great pleasure for me to be here again, back again. Um, I'm, I'm happy, you know, like um, there is room for some extra sharing. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to to be here. So thank you. Oh, that's awesome. So as with most of the folks that we talk to, I always like to hear how you got interested in linguistics and when when you found out what linguistics actually was, like how, mm. how early in your educational career did you come to understand what linguistics actually meant? Mm, interesting. Well, I maybe this is different for different people like um in this particular case i i am originally from spain so um i i was growing up as a um, monolingual kid like in back at the times you know i kind of the early 90s um spain was not necessarily a very very bilingual or or a place where different you know linguistic diversity was actually in place Mm -hmm. right so well not to mention english like we come from a tradition of having like more roman languages like romance languages like french Mm -hmm. and etc right so my parents for example kind of speak some words of french but not a single word of english so um in, in my case my my introduction to linguistics and just different languages and and the understanding of uh, the combination of language society etc came as a kind of five-year-old when um one of my uncles um, my mother's brother um he had like a collection of cassettes that Mm -hmm. he would actually get like periodically he would access to those like he would go like he would get all those cassettes delivered to his house and well, he was very much interested in English, but he didn't have the means to actually go to university or just do something related um, to that, right? So all of a sudden, I'm just like this five-year-old kid, and I get like a collection of English cassettes that um, you know I, I had no idea what to do with, right? Mm-hmm. So I was um, kind of exposed to the sound of English, like not understanding a clue, and I think I it was just like. <laughs> love at first sight like I was like thrilled by the way intonation happened you know like the way words were pronounced like I I was kind of always curious just to kind of try to understand what was going on so that stayed there and in my case it was not till late that I was actually exposed to formal education in English like um, many 
linguists and language inquisition people would say that this is quite late in the in the process but it was kind of nine ten when you started getting or when i started getting some exposure to um formal english education so i think my journey with linguistics kind of happened hand in hand with the idea of um you know becoming a different self in a different language right mm-hmm. so i i started to realize that um i really loved um you know the the possibility of accessing like a different a completely different world different literature different culture so um that is kind of this spark of kind of what influenced pretty much my my decisions later on in life like um okay i want to make sure i I, um, you know, I continue this path and, and that's how I got into um, English, which is my first undergraduate degree. That's so interesting. I, for the these cassettes that you were listening to, were they instructional or were they just content in English? Um, it was a kind of a combination, but the ones I vividly re- remember, it's just like conversations of like, um, I don't know, at the restaurant. Um, but it happened without... So, it was very much in isolation. So it's not that mm-hmm. I had the books, I, um, maybe the cassettes came with. It was just like the collection of cassettes. So uh-huh. um, it, it was kind of deciphering what was going on. Like it's, yeah, it yeah. was kind of being exposed to that and not having the chance to put it into practice. Because again, I also grow up, I, I was brought up in a very rural area in Spain. Um, just to give you an example, we didn't have like language schools. Like it was, it was very difficult for you to get exposed to the possibility. And of course, like maybe some people listening today will be like, okay, well, but we didn't have the possibility of getting into the internet, like subtitles, you know, like TV shows, et cetera, were not such a thing. So um yeah it was it was very difficult so um for me that was kind of the window to kind of what came afterwards as you're talking about it it almost sounds like you were doing linguistics right like you just were exposed to this language with no context so it's like yeah. when you're doing field work right and you go and you're just exactly. listening to people talking and you're trying to figure out like okay what are they <laughs> saying what is actually happening how interesting um, yeah. I, and I, I just want to ask you one other thing growing up in Spain were you aware of the the other languages spoken in Spain, like Catalan and, and Basque and stuff? Was that part of, of your like context growing up or was that not really something that was talked about or or mm. you know, put put to the students as you were getting your education? That's a that's a very interesting question, Laurel, because it, it was not. Like it is true mm. that again, um I come from right the middle of the peninsula. So it's not Madrid. But it's actually a region. Well, uh, many many listeners here will know, like Don Quixote and the Manchego cheese. So I come from that region, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's it's a very rural area. Like it's it's very flat. It's very yellow. <laughs> it, it is a fascinating area in many regards. I love it, and I'm very proud of of being from there. But it's true that we're not we're very monolingual. It's it's not um we do not have a bilingual region nearby. So it's not the Catalonia, it's close to us or Galicia or mm-hmm, the Basque mm-hmm. country. So um I, I kind of grew up with a very uh, monolingual mindset, so to speak. So um mm. which in my opinion is a huge disadvantage, right? Mm-hmm. Especially considering the beautiful diversity that we do have in the in the peninsula, right? So um yeah, it was it was a very monolingual monocultural uh, I, I you know maybe this is perhaps sharing a bit too much but um people would make fun of you um when you would speak let me quote like 
this is inverted commas, right? When you would try to pronounce English as it sounds or mm-hmm, a close mm-hmm. version of what it is, people would make fun of you if you try to do that. So it, mm-hmm. that, that is the type of context, right? So it's this idea of like, oh, um, who you think you are? Like you're, you're from this rural area. Right. Um, people have like, um, that was not the case with my family, but um, most families had like businesses around um, um, vineyards or things like that, right? So it was a very specific type of culture. And to me, maybe <laughs> that's also part of the interest in linguistics or learning languages, right? Like this is a, a road that I can follow to mm-hmm. actually, um, you know, explore different areas. So definitely an area I didn't very much belong to. Um, so um, yeah, that was, I think that's all part of the um, journey in my case. Yeah, so oh, that's so interesting. I, I think the same goes for a lot of people in the United States as well. Like, mm. you know, so few people grow up um, who are native English speakers grow up knowing about other languages. It's different, mm-hmm. of course, for people who have other languages spoken in the home, but it, it's a huge disadvantage. You know, everybody mm. should be have a little exposure, right? Just so you know mm-hmm. what's out there. Mm-hmm. So that led you on in your education. When you went to, to mm-hmm. university, was it a deliberate choice to start studying mm-hmm. languages and linguistics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, it is also true, Laurel, that I always had like a very, very strong teaching vocation. Like um, mm-hmm. I, I remember playing, uh, <laughs> that was actually my pastime, right? Like I would I would gather like cousins or you know, like mm-hmm. neighbors or like, teddy bears, whatever worked actually. So um, I would pretend that um, those little things were my actual students. I would create Mm -hmm. assignments. I would grade the assignments. So that was um, a fascination that I had. So um, I combined both things, right? And that's why I, um, I had a very clear idea that I wanted to get into English, which also, interestingly, in Spain, it's actually different i suppose of course due to the um, situation and the context but um in in an english degree you do english linguistics so to speak but also Mm -hmm, a lot mm -hmm. of english literature and culture Mm -hmm. right so um it was it was kind of half half the the content and um it was with a bit of um, opposition from some members in my family (laughs) it's like (laughs) oh but what why are you doing that like I, i was actually good student um so many people would think that it was talent going to waste (laughs) so people would think like oh maybe you should study law you should study business Mm -hmm. you should study many other things that um in a way didn't really click with um how i view the world back then right so sure they were just being practical do something where you can get a job right you know (laughs) what are you gonna do with an english degree you can't get a job doing that that's insane exactly that was precisely the main argument like oh it's true that i started um university 2006 which is very very close to uh, the huge financial crisis that we had Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it is true that many people were like oh wow i i don't think you're making the right decision here Mm -hmm. um especially uh this is you're gonna end your degree and you're gonna go straight to (laughs) the unemployment Mm -hmm. so um yeah it was but it was very deliberate in my in my in my case i i knew i wanted 
want to do that. And, and yeah, that was my first and only choice. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I went for that. I went I went to Madrid. I moved from my um, rural um, village in the plateau in Spain. And then I went to Madrid. And, and that was fascinating, Laurel, as well, because I, I really, <laughs> really crashed. I, I kind of woke up and I just saw the reality um, coming from that area where just with very little English, you would stand out. Remember what we were talking about before, right? Like people mm-hmm. making fun of you. So whatever, like two sentences you could put together, that was actually like, oh, wow, that's 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 great. So I get into one of the biggest universities in, in Spain, Complutense, and, and that was a huge kind of wake-up uh, call. Like um, I, I, I got my, my first test, English test, was a three out of 10, <laughs> which was like terrible news. I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? But it is true that, um, you know, that was kind of a good moment for me to realize that nothing was going to go for granted. I shouldn't be taking anything for granted. So um, after that, things, you know, started to kind of align better and, and things turn out to be okay. I think your experience, many people can relate to that. And mm. my own experience at Berkeley Mm-hmm. was in teaching kids who had that experience. Mm. So UC Berkeley is a, a state school. It's not cheap, mm-hmm. but it's it's less expensive than many mm-hmm. of the private schools. And Berkeley's huge. You know, there are thousands and thousands of kids there. Mm-hmm. And I saw the kids who were coming in who really didn't know what it would be like in a city. Berkeley is a mm-hmm. city and it's close to San Francisco. And they were not equipped to deal with that environment, maybe coming from a rural area or just a a small town. And suddenly they're thrown into this huge environment where all of your introductory classes, you have like 500 other people who are taking the class and there's hardly any time for individual attention and you have to manage your own schedule. It's culture shock Mm, in so many ways. And it's especially tough for non-white middle-class kids too, because Mm, mm. no one is preparing them for this. Um, They're just expected to kind of sink or swim. And it, it, no matter how smart you are, that kind of culture shock can be extremely difficult to deal with. And I I think the big universities really do not provide enough support for those kids Mm. in to help them make the adjustment. And your grades, of course, are going to suffer because you're just trying Mm. to keep your head above water. Trying to get Mm -hmm. good grades is like secondary to staying alive and and not being freaked out 100% percent of the time i agree laurel actually that that makes me think like um i remember getting into my first day <laughs> as an undergraduate um i would listen to many of my classmates and they were just saying like oh yes because i've been spending all my summers in canada or yeah. i've been going to the uk for i don't know and and laurel i i had never left my village honestly mm-hmm. and my, my parents i mean you mentioned this like a middle class thing but i was kind of desperate to do that right i really wanted every summer i would get like the best grades you could get I was always hoping to get something like that. Like, okay, I could see my friends in my village going to, I don't know, Ireland, um, England, whatever. And that's something I really wanted, but I never had the chance to do, especially, mm-hmm. again, like for my parents, that was a huge, <laughs> a huge commitment that they couldn't afford. So mm-hmm. um, I remember myself getting into the first kind of um, days of, of uni and, and really feeling that I was completely out of place it was a mm-hmm, big city mm-hmm. it was madrid it was like people with a completely different cultural pedigree so um i, I really felt 
it, it was it was as as you very nicely mentioned before it was it was not only getting good grades because in my case I also needed to those up to get those grades to actually get money from the state to continue mm-hmm, studying mm-hmm. um it was also a matter of like oh my gosh like this is this is not me i mean i haven't had the opportunities that these people have had so it was a very huge um shock that i really had to um overcome at, at the very beginning of those five years um where you know undergraduate degrees back then used to be five years like m- mm-hmm. most of them though so yeah that's that's an interesting point that you mentioned there and, and and thank you for bringing that up it absolutely carries through. Um, there have been a number of studies that have shown that the students who do best in undergrad and graduate school are people whose parents are rich and mm-hmm. whose parents are professors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so no one ever talks about this. Um, as, as we were saying before we got started, this is one of those things that People are never told that mm-hmm. going into higher education, no matter whether it's undergrad or, or if you're pursuing a postgrad degree, people who have wealth and who have parents who understand the system have a mm-hmm. built-in advantage over everyone else. And it's not fair, but that's the way it is. And so you just have to accept it um, mm-hmm. and try to work with it. It would be great if we could change the system, but it is a systematic thing in the U.S. and in other countries as well. Um, mm. But again, no one ever talks about it. Like nobody yeah. ever said that to me when I was in grad school. I was like, why are yeah. these people having such an easier time than me? And mm. no one said, well, it's because both of their parents are university professors and yeah. your parents never went to college. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so but you did. You persevered. You persevered, <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you made it through. And and so, um, did you get a degree in linguistics, or was it just called an English degree? Um, it's it's interesting because we we have it. You know, like um, I actually went back to that later on in life just to do some teaching there as well as part of my PhD. We can get into that afterwards. But um, it's what we what we called English philology, <laughs> which is oh, the word interesting. That, oh, that's so yeah. cool. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's this huge tradition of of you know um, linguistics, but also getting to know a lot about um, you know getting to know a lot about literature. So mm-hmm. you could get um, you know uh, North American, also um, English um, kind of literature. So that was a combination of both, and, and that was my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I love that actually. I love calling it philology. <laughs> it's an old word, but you know it works. It makes me think of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and all those kinds. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's good. Um, and then, did you go straight on to get um, further education after that, or did you take some time mm. off? No, I. I. Um, this is also kind of related to my my background back then i was working all the time so even if mm-hmm. i was getting support from the state to actually go to to uni by um, month you know yearly kind of um grants as we call them like it's 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 um, i feel very fortunate and that's why i also kind of support the type of system that i i come from like i i didn't have to pay a penny to get my education mm-hmm. um that's in my opinion the only way to actually kind of getting to the social um, elevator of, mm. of being able to do something with your life, regardless of the context you come from. As, as I said before, like my parents, they have no formal education whatsoever. Like they mm-hmm. finished the primary studies and that was it. So 
it is true that um, fortunately, and it still applies, right? In Spain, you can actually go and get a university degree free of charge. Of course, you 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 pay tax and everything, right? So whenever I say free of charge, it's not that you know it's it's a public system. It's it's something that um, you get some support from the state to actually um, pay tuition fees and also living costs. So. Despite that, I was always working from the very beginning because it's mm-hmm. it's also true that um, with that money, I barely made it, so to speak. Also, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, it was tough times in Spain for the economy. My family mm-hmm. didn't necessarily um, um, did well. So it was also kind of that, um, you know, compromise with my family, trying to help, trying to contribute. So I was working all the time um, during my undergraduate years. And... What I knew for sure is that I needed to kind of make sure my professional future was sorted. So Mm -hmm. that is why I finished my undergrads and then I went into the first MA that I took, which is the compulsory title you need to become a um, teacher in Spain. So without that certification, you cannot actually um, work as a teacher for the state or for many private centers. So um, after five years of um, undergrad degree, that uh, again, like it's not that I took five years, it's like the established time was five years. I went into one extra year of uh, MA in teaching English as a foreign language. So that was the first thing. And the main motivation, the main drive was like, okay, I know I love teaching. I know it's very vocational for me, but it is also true that I felt the urgent need <laughs> to to be independent and to be able to access the um, the world of labor um, as soon as possible. So that is the main decision that actually shaped my, uh, that's the main thing that shaped my decision, yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, that's that's great. I you kind of have to have that that self motivation. I, I think in in your situation because no one's telling you what to do, right? Like yes. it has to come <laughs> from within you to say this is how I want my life path to exactly. go. I'd like to try to direct it. Um, okay, so um, at that point, were you really set on becoming a, a professor or a teacher? It sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um... It's true that um, my aspirations um, when I was doing my undergrad were very clear. So I wanted to finish that. I wanted to uh, become a um, state teacher and go mm-hmm. back to my village <laughs> and do and do kind of like, you know, um, work there as a teacher. Um, but then again, when I uh, was doing my undergrad, I had the chance to go to the UK um, as part of the Erasmus program, which is, again, like this exchange um, possibility to go abroad. Um, and, and in my case, I decided to go to the UK. So um, it was back at the time and the modules that I was taking, I remember the first module um, that actually made an impact and how I started to realize that I wanted to do something else apart from teaching mm-hmm. um, was things like applied linguistics or language in society so i remember just doing like field work though back at the times just studying how people from british culture and spanish culture would talk about um taboo areas so the 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 words that they would use to describe images that i would show them Uh, so it was those experiences that kind of made me realize like okay maybe it's not that I want to do primary, secondary school teaching. I want to pursue my academic career further. Mm-hmm. So um, I started having those things in mind against all the odds. And as I mentioned before, like despite this very low grade at the very beginning of my degree, I ended up with a 
great uh, average like the final score was a very good one so um that made me also realize like okay i do have it seems i have it you know it seems i have the possibility to to do something more apart from um this kind of expected path of of doing secondary primary teaching mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah it was kind of late in my degree when i started realizing that maybe um getting into the all academia thing um, was going to be a thing. I feel like I've heard this from other folks that I've talked to Mm -hmm. who didn't really know that you could do as a job or or as a vocation, looking at how language is actually used, the applied Mm -hmm. part of linguistics, because Mm -hmm. it's not really talked about. And and to that point, your experience is is mostly things that you read or Mm -hmm. instruction in how to speak properly. But then suddenly you're like, oh, you can actually do analysis and, and data on how people talk about things yeah. normally yeah. in real life. And then a whole world opens up for you when you start to look at how you can break down actual language use. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you can't be stopped once you figured that out. It's like, oh, this is great. This is what I want to yeah. do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's that's pretty much it in my case, Laurel. Like I, I kind of all of a sudden I realized that, oh, wow, you, um, also it's context, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. I think back at the time, like different tools were available to kind of analyze language more systematically. So mm-hmm. frequency, like very simple things, Laurel, like, okay, which is the, um, the frequency list that we get of this text and just get a very automatic recollection of that and, and kind of try to draw conclusions from that. Um, that was, that was very, um, that was very exciting. And, and that's kind of the, the main motivation why I said, okay, maybe, um, because again, like I didn't have, I didn't have references. Like I, I didn't know what you had to do to be a professor. Like I kind of mm-hmm. knew what to do to be a teacher, but um, I didn't know what was the path to follow if you wanted be if you wanted to be part of academia. So it was my parents. Very soon they realized that they they couldn't really help. Like um, I, this is a funny story, but. My mom would always say, like, as I said before, like, um, I did English philology. My mom would say, like, oh, he's studying English philosophy. <laughs> <Which is, laughs> well, close enough, you know. I mean, it, it is a little bit of that. Yeah. Okay, okay, mom. Um, but they were very supportive, especially when they realized that that's something I really loved and, and that's something that I wanted to do. But it's true that they couldn't help. Like they couldn't yeah. help um, guiding. They couldn't help telling me, oh, maybe this is what you should be doing. So that lack of references was something that was challenging. Mm-hmm. But um, I was lucky enough to get to have like fantastic professors and fantastic, fantastic people around that. Okay, this is a possibility. They were less keen on sharing what it takes to make mm-hmm. it in academia. So um, that is something that some of them were more open about. It is true that, you know, the, the more you know about them, the more you realize that in many cases, they do have different backgrounds. They come from more established um, family settings. So um, for them, it was easier um, to get an academic career that it was going to be for me, of course. But um, yeah, it was interesting also just to navigate all that. For mm-hmm. me, it was, it was a real challenge. You know, I, I know your education has been in Europe, but it is exactly parallel to here in the United States mm-hmm. in terms of higher education and how you navigate it. And again, if you don't have family 
who can mm. advise you on these things, you, you have to try to find it in other places because mm. a lot of it is just secret arcane knowledge that yeah. you could never find out <laughs> on your own. Like it's not in any books. Now it is a little bit more. I think there yeah. are so many people who are building support networks for people in, in school who come from different backgrounds than the mm. traditional background. You can find it, but there there is nothing like having an advisor, right, who's been through mm. it, who can actually tell you, yeah, you, you need to talk to this person and you need to format your things like this. And, you mm. know, just so many little things that make all the difference in the world. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So next step, where did you go after that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then um, um, I was like, okay, let me try this out. I finished my first MA, um, getting like teaching English. So in my mindset was relaxed, was like, okay, whatever happens, you know, um, whatever worst scenario I just find, I know I will have the qualifications to become a uh, English teacher, right? So mm -hmm. that was something that to me was very necessary to have, especially knowing that, I couldn't depend on my family financially, right? So it was mm -hmm. like, okay, let me let me just uh, make sure that is finished. So it was at that point where I was like, okay, I love language and society. I love discourse analysis. I love all this idea of um, how listening to people, analyzing what people say can tell you fascinating or not always so fascinating, but very telling and revealing things about their lives and how they see the world, right? So I applied for funding. Again, this is, this is terrible, but it, in my case, it was all funding oriented. Like I needed to get the funding to go mm -hmm. to the UK, like uh, uh, tuition fees in the UK back at the time and even now, but they were like impossible for a person with my background, right? So I got a grant to actually go to the UK. That was a very nice Lakaisha Foundation um, scholarship that I, I was happy to have because I went to the UK for a year and then I did a master's in discourse studies. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of the first step to actually become serious in the idea of, of, of being part of academia because it was a very specialized master's. I went there because the people were like Ruth Vodak, um, Norman Fairclough, big people in my field um, were teaching or had been teaching there. Um, so that was kind of the first step for me to kind of start my journey to academia. At that point, were you thinking of yourself as a linguist? Mm, interesting you mentioned this. I would, I would say at that point, I started to see myself as a linguist. It's not that that identity was fully forged within me, mm -hmm. um, especially because I was a you know graduate student. It, it's true that in my case, Laurel, the teaching identity has always been like very prominent, which also has risks. We can talk about that after all, when, you know, mm -hmm. with all this jumping to something completely different and, and, and how that leaves you, right? But in my case, it, it was a very strong idea that, okay, I love doing research about languages, but my fascination is just being in front of a class and, and just sharing that with students, the community mm -hmm. that you create with, with a group of people there, learning from each other, you know, uh, you learn from your students, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it is true that it was not quite there, um, especially because it, it was like, okay, um, this is something that I like, but maybe I'm not sure if I'll be able to um, find a way to, to make it happen professionally. But it is mm -hmm. true that I started to, I would say that Back at the time when I went to the UK to do such a specialized master's, um, it was like, okay, maybe this is starting to happen. You know, I was starting to get rid of this idea like 
um, it was impossible for a person um, with my circumstances to make it into back at the time that was top 10 uh, UK uh, British university so it's like mm-hmm. okay there are means to do it right so um, it, it is true that um, that was we're talking about 2012 right now so back at the time I was uh, this idea of becoming a uh, discourse analyst um, or linguist was already um, up there and so I'm I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and your your educational list is a little overwhelming. Um because after this you you continued, I mean you continued on to get a joint PhD also, but there was also more education back in Spain, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. But I have to say, I've talked to other people and I, I know this from from folks that I knew too. Sometimes there is a point where you're like, well, what am I going to do? You know what? I think I'll just go and get a little more education because, <laughs> there, you know, the, the, the way forward isn't clear. And it's like, I don't know. Should I, should I try to get a job here? Should I do that? And the easiest yeah. path forward is I'm good at school. So I'm yeah, just going to go back exactly. and, and do more school. <laughs> I completely agree with that, Laurel. Like I was – that was something that to me clicked with my identity. Like, as I said, um, growing up, I, I really think people do not talk about how childhood really impacts your life mm-hmm. in such a way that you kind of realize afterwards. But when you think of yourself growing up in an area where you clearly don't belong, like when, when you see mm-hmm. that people have like a completely different mindset, when they have like completely different interests, very respectful, but definitely not what I wanted to do in life and what what, what actually moved me, right? So um, in, in my case, schooling, uh, reading was also kind of the way to create parallel realities, right? Parallel realities just to kind of mm-hmm. find ways of like making sense of yourself, right? In my case, um, that tiny identity uh, being forged. So I agree with you, Laurel. I think that was part of the reason. It, again, like I, I think there might be some differences here. Like um, um, I, it, it is true that I only did a PhD because I, I had it funded. So it was very competitive scheme of, you know, under, um, doctoral study. So it was four years of funding for you to do your PhD. Um, because again, like uh, for me, that was the necessary thing to continue doing um, education. Also, it is true that after my um, master's in the UK, I was like, okay, maybe I actually, I, I can be a part of this. I can be in academia. I can, I can just... Um, continuing this path and for that you of course need um a phd Mm -hmm. so uh that was the main motivation it is true the project that i was doing my thesis on was a fascinating topic for me so basically i was exploring that um online communities you know addressed at women going through intimate partner violence situations Mm -hmm. so I was interested in seeing if the, um, you know, the way they talked about themselves and the perpetrators changed depending on the um, a psychological stage they were in. So if, if they were in an initial stage of abuse compared to a final stage of abuse, if their um, kind of discursive usage was different and in which ways. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I always had this very strong social impetus to kind of accompany um, my my studies and my research so um that was a social 
public health issue, I was very much interested in exploring and also trying to see how someone from a language background could actually contribute to better understanding it, to actually helping um, women in this situation by knowing how they communicate, knowing mm-hmm. how they make sense of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that was that was also part of the motivation why I decided to do a PhD. It was I had a lot of freedom. I was very lucky to have um, both supervisors were very, very flexible. They gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do. Um, they provided fantastic guidance. But um, again, like um, I had the chance to kind of craft my own path into um, my PhD during those years. So you were doing amazing work in this program. You know, the topic that you're talking about, I think, is a a Mm. fantastic example of how linguistics can analyze and help in the Mm. real world, right? It's not just theoretical stuff where you're Mm -hmm. Um, thinking about things that may not have an effect. I mean, this is real, as we say, rubber hits the road kind of linguistics. Mm. As you were doing this, were you still thinking that you were going to stay in academia or were you starting to see that there might be a path somewhere else? No, I was, I was, and this is interesting. We can talk about that afterwards. But um, to me, and for, I would say, I would dare say that for most people, I would say things are changing lately. But back at the time, we're talking about 2015, 2016, um, it, was, it was very rare to find people with a background like mine trying to do something outside academia. So um, like all, all these possibilities that also, let me tell you something, maybe for people in the US that might be slightly different, but in Spain, I would say that your undergrad and your, imagine your graduate degrees really shape, like kind of force you to stick to one path, which is a terrible mistake, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like it's very specialized. They, you know, the, the system and the programs in Spain, and I would say actually many different areas of Europe, right? But it's it's very difficult to actually find ways, alternative ways of what to do, which is something I love about the US system. Like you can, you have the flexibility of like, okay, I went to uni, I did this, but then um, I, I all of a sudden I realized I wanted to do that. And there are ways that allow you to do that, right? Um, so in my case, it was back at the time, even when I finished my PhD, I was kind of seriously committed to the idea that I was going to continue in academia. Hmm. As you're saying it, I'm, I'm thinking about the differences. I, I think part of it may be that there are just far too many people getting degrees in the United mm. States. I mean, there are there's no jobs in academia mm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been trending in that direction for a long time. Mm. So just by default, you have to look outside. But mm. I also think there's there's a part of it that's uh, sort of the the horrible unbridled capitalism in the US that, you know, the, the value of, of remaining in academia is outside of academia is mm-hmm. low. Right. Like mm. you you are expected to get a reasonable paying job. And if you mm. stay in academia, that's not going to happen because mm-hmm. that's just the, the way academia is set up. And, and it's partly because our public school system is so terrible and all of that. You know, it, it's just mm. a, a cultural difference from Europe. And, and I yeah. think that's partly why it's it's a little bit different in the U.S. But mm. 
I think it's changing in, in Europe as well. You know, um, at the linguistics career launch last uh, two years ago, we talked with the upskills people who are this consortium of folks who are actively looking at and promoting careers outside of academia for linguists. And they are making huge strides, you know, doing so much great research and, and really bringing this to people in who are getting degrees in academia as a real option. So if no one else is doing it, at least they are doing it. And, and it yeah. seems to be changing. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm very happy to hear that. I, I know that I think the mindset is also changing, you know, like for mm. many people, um, my generation doing a PhD was kind of almost a synonym with staying in academia. Mm-hmm. I think people nowadays are seeing like, and, and also it's not that you have to have a PhD, right? It's, it's right. It, yeah. Like it's, it's like, okay, it's, it's not for everyone, which is something that I sometimes kind of, you know, I, I have my feelings towards that. Like there is no need to actually get into a PhD program unless you feel like, as I mentioned before, in my case, it was motivated by the fact that it was funded. So it was kind of, okay, schooling, um, doing what I love. I was very passionate about the topic that I was doing, but I've, I've come across people who kind of get into a PhD for just the sake, uh, the sake of it, sorry. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, okay, well, maybe there's no need to waste your time mm-hmm. four or five years in doing something that you're not really interested in. So um, I'm happy uh, to also see that people are changing the mindset of like, oh, well, even if I did to graduate school, there are many things I can do besides academia, just beyond Mm -hmm. academia, right? So um, that's, uh, I couldn't agree more there. So having said all that, Mm. <laughs> when did, did, did the, the, the opportunity present itself for you personally to go, oh, maybe I don't need to be in academia anymore? <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's it's a very kind of life again, like as you may have gathered and, and people have gathered, but it's, um, my, in my case, my personal situation has always kind of been kind of guiding the rest, right? So I came to the US um, to do a postdoc because it's like, okay, let's, let's, this is what it, let's do more let's, school. Let's do more why school. Why not? Why not? Exactly. <laughs> um, so I came here and then all of a sudden, you know, we get into COVID. So I yeah. was um, supposed to be here for two years and then, you know, like, um, I came September 2019. I was like, okay, just be two years here and then go back to Spain, continue with my um, with my thingy there. Well, COVID started and it was at that time when I was in the US, then uh, my personal life also changed. I was not expecting that to happen. That was kind of a very interesting change in, in what I was expecting to get from my state you know, here in the US, right? So I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> now we're talking. So um, it's one of these moments when you're just getting to know someone, right? Like you're like, okay, this is going, like this is nice. And then we, we we're at that stage when COVID, you know, started. So um, it was at that point, everything stopped as we all very well know. So it was at that moment when I was like, okay, now I need to make a decision. What do I prioritize? Do I just continue with my life? I, I kind of not listen to my emotions. I just go back to Spain and then continue what I was 
hoping to be doing and then just pretend nothing has happened or <laughs> I prioritize this opportunity, great opportunity that uh, life has given me now and I try to, I have to do something else with my professional uh, life. Mm-hmm. And I went for the second option. <laughs> so <laughs> it was at that time when I was like, okay, um, I knew I was very unconnected to the US academic market. Like as, as you pointed out before, my education was mostly in Europe. Uh, we all know how this goes. Like it's it's about the connections, it's about mm-hmm. um, family connections, links, um, stuff yeah. like that. In most cases, I'm not saying that that's not the case. That's the, that's the case for everyone, right? But it is true that I, I came to um, the US for a postdoc and it's not necessarily that you build strong relationships during a postdoc, you know, like not to mention that in the middle of it, we are forced to go and stay home, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it was at that point where I realized that my academic opportunities were very limited in the US. Um, like I, I did try to um, to get into different positions way for positions where you didn't even have to have a PhD with you, like lecturing positions, like stuff like that. And I I get into this realization where like, oh, maybe this too much schooling is not working to my benefit. Because of course, if I'm trying to get like a lecturership position, a PhD may be too much of of, um, a degree, right? Mm -hmm. So it it was the situation of kind of thinking, stopping and thinking, okay, maybe now I need to find something else. Also, Laurel, we're talking about stage where the end of the PhD was there. And in most cases, and and people may relate with this, but it is at that point where all this schooling scheme stops. (laughs) So all of a sudden you find yourself, oh, wow, now there is nothing. There is nothing else right. I can continue doing. So um, what am I good at? <laughs> right. What can I do? So um, it gets to a point where you're just not a PhD candidate anymore. You're supposed to be, okay, okay, which are your papers? Um, and as, as I mentioned before, it's not that I've had this very strong research motivation. It was mostly teaching motivation. So um, I found myself really struggling with the dynamics of publishing, this publisher perish, mm, which is like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you know, like, um, why is it that uh, we are forced to get into this trap at such an early stage, right? You just kind of put in everything together and then all of a sudden you're expected to get like this super competitive, like apply for funding, be your uh, BI, right? So um, it was at that point as well when I kind of started to realize that my mental health was stake. Like, um, uh, this is very interesting and I didn't experience this until I left academia. I never felt at ease when I was not, you know, when I was kind of having fun, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I would go for vacation and there would always have a voice inside me like, oh my gosh, you know, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Uh, like, why is it that you're not writing? Why is it that you're not mm-hmm. applying for funding? Um, and that became a very, very tricky situation where sitting down to write was not at all like a, a, a 
pleasant activity for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where I started to realize that maybe it was high time I started um, finding different alternatives. Wow. That's so interesting. And I think so many people who are listening to this will absolutely relate to that because it is the expectation, right? Again, it's nothing that anybody ever talks about explicitly, Mm -hmm. but it's never done. Even Mm -hmm. when you're a graduate student and then when you're a professor, you're always supposed to be doing stuff. And the, the, the three month vacation in the middle of the year when, when it's summer, that's not a vacation, right? Because yeah. you're using that time to do all the stuff that you weren't, you didn't have the time and energy to do when classes were actually in session. So mm. you're, you're writing and you're applying for grants and, and you're trying to line up all your other research. It, you never have time off. You never feel like you're free from exactly. the things that you're supposed to be doing. And it's very bad for your mental health. Yeah. And especially uh, you mentioned this before, like, is this kind of urge to be the very best and not even that because uh, the market is so poor in general, like um, it's it's so difficult to get into established, well-paying academic position that despite, you know, like it doesn't really matter how many papers you have, um, mm-hmm. the prices that you get, like the recognitions that you may have had it's never enough for you. Like many people were telling me, oh no, but academia, you know, it's this flexibility of, of not having a manager, like or the, the ability to do whatever you want to do. And I always tell them like, and, and don't get me wrong, like I, I think academia has great things, but um, it's it's this thing of not being enough for yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you, don't, you don't have a manager, of course, like people have may have supervisors, IPs that are very demanding or very strict. That was never my case. But what I felt it was it was never enough for me. So how do you how do you tackle that? How do you, despite all this schooling, despite all these recognitions, despite of all this, how do you um, um, get along with the idea that it's never enough? It's yeah. it's a very difficult position to be in. So that is why, um, that was the, one of the reasons why I was like, okay, I want to explore which other options I have with my background, with my education, with a PhD in linguistics or, you know, a, a graduate degree in linguistics. Um, what it, What is it that I can do with it? Yeah. I, you know, I, I was just thinking um, this again, I, I'm sorry to keep harping on it, but it's the thing that they never tell you. Right. So yeah. with, with so few opportunities available in, in academia, you can apply, you can be the best, right. You can have yeah publications of course you personally will probably feel like you don't have enough publications but you can have <laughs> great evaluations you apply for these few academic jobs and you don't get it and you think you didn't get it because you weren't good enough and maybe exactly. someone even tells you that you're not good enough when the actual reason you didn't get that job was that the person who did get it their aunt used to be friends with the employment person at that university I agree. And you didn't know. You'll never know that because no one ever tells you that. And sure, networking is important in industry, but it's it's more transparent. And if you don't get a job, usually someone will tell you, it's like, well, you were really well qualified, but we had this other person and they knew somebody, blah, blah, blah. And then you find out what it is. Mm. Uh, But you're not made to feel like it's because you were not sufficient. You were not qualified my experience certainly in academia was being told that I wasn't good enough for Mm. various things, for programs that I applied for. And 
having it turn out not to be the case at all, that that wasn't true. It wasn't because mm. I wasn't qualified. It was because Absolutely. somebody knew somebody. And mm -hmm. that's just the way it is. So if we could just be more transparent about it, mm -hmm. I think that would benefit everybody. Again, mm -hmm. a systematic change that I don't know if is ever going to happen, but boy, mm -hmm. it would be nice if people weren't made to feel like like they were bad people when exactly. they're not. They're just not. I, I completely agree with that. So moving on with your journey. Um, so <laughs> so now you are starting to think that you're going to do something else. And, and then you did. So how did that happen? <laughs> well, this is interesting because then um, all of a sudden I just get into, I don't even know, I think it was a LinkedIn thing um, mm. where they talk about something like, oh, um, career launch for linguists like um <laughs> let's explore different options outside academia and back at the time i was like as i said before right like with this mental state of like i want to know how it is like i'm, I'm, I'm someone laurel i think that's also personality traits but there are people who kind of um stick to what they know but in my case i'm always like okay hold on a minute what is it to to be outside academia i want to know i want to find out mm -hmm. um so I, I bumped into this um interesting linkedin thing i registered straight away i was like okay i want to know i i i want to know what's going on here and and that's how i made it to the first <laughs> the first linguistics um career launch bootcamp that we shared uh 2021 if i'm not wrong mm -hmm. yes that's yeah. correct yes um, exactly. So that was three weeks of, oh my gosh, I, I, well, you were there, Laurel, so you, you can, of course, yeah. you know, uh, echo the words here, but it was very it intense. Was, <laughs> it was, oh my gosh, it was, I remember the, um, the goodbye moment, right? Like the final day after three weeks of sharing, you know, experiences, um, um, of sharing like different possibilities for linguists, um, not all, not also that, but I remember, I, I vividly remember like this um, talks that we had with people that didn't necessarily have a linear path, which is something mm -hmm. that maybe we haven't talked too much about it. But academia is is thought to, it's kind of made to be this linear thing, as if that's yeah. it's one thing after another, like neat, spotless kind of path that you need to follow. So I remember just listening to very fascinating talks about people who had, I don't know, left academia, then came and do like some action positions, then left that again and continue doing something else. Uh, that was that was really inspiring, um, especially again at a position that I was, and I suppose many people felt the same, where I felt that I didn't know what to do. Like I, I remember having conversations with my partner, with my friends, like, oh, but what is it that I know how to do? What can I do? Like after all this schooling and after all this um, PhD thingy and everything and all the uh, different stages in, that I had had, not to mention that I I, I was continuing with my uh, teaching um, uh, job, mm -hmm. right? So uh, despite all that, um, which is also very telling of the mental state that many people have in academia, and I, I've only realized that having left academia a little bit, it's it's this idea of like, oh, but what is it that I know how to do? What is it that mm -hmm, I can do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I found myself in this fantastic three-week program, listening to fascinating people um, on, on what you can do with uh, 
linguistics, a BA in linguistics, an MA in linguistics or whatever, right? So that was the beginning. <laughs> that was the beginning of the change for me when I, I was, I remember like waking up every day, um, really, really looking forward to those sessions. And I was like, okay, what am I going to learn today? What What is it that we, what is that, what is it that we can do with, with the background in linguistics? So that was that was the uh, the moment when uh, my shift started, as they would say, the inciting event. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so after that was over, it, it took a while though for you to actually get a job that was outside of academia. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. It's interesting because, um, well, basically, uh, this is also um, um, fun because I I didn't know. Like I had my academic um, CV. I was I had no idea that you needed to craft it a little bit to, yeah. to make it appealing to industry. So yeah. all the soft skills that you're not trained in academia because that's not happening like no one tells you oh well maybe life will take you to a position where you won't be able to continue with your academic career. So mm-hmm. This is what you can do. Like, I'm going to give you tools to actually encounter, to kind of be prepared um, where life to all of a sudden change for you, right? And 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 that's what, for me, those three weeks were. Like, uh, the little things of like, oh, the LinkedIn. Um, and, and, and maybe you've noticed, but I did some changes, but I know that the way in my, in my case, this job happened, it came very straight um, after making some tiny changes here and there mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I, I got a call from a recruiter um, offering this position that I um, have at the moment at Amazon, right? Um, so those three weeks for me were key to actually understand how things work outside academia and the many nitty gritty details that you could actually mm-hmm. need to take into account to not even like have an interview like these days you just send your cv and in most case in most cases the algorithm would just go for what you need to you're looking for and if you don't have that in your cv then just you will never be called for an interview you will never have Mm -hmm. that call from a recruiter etc right so uh those tips for me were like super useful and necessary um and and that's how making some changes here and there doing one very basic Python course, um, I, I just got a call from my recruiter at Amazon. And, and that's how the, um, the the journey to industry started. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, as we were talking about before, when I was asking you if you were thinking of yourself as a linguist, it, mm. it really is who you want your identity to be. Yeah. And your academic identity is different from your industry yeah. identity. And that's also different from your personal identity. You know, mm. that's your your community of practice is going to be different exactly. depending on your environment. And it doesn't one doesn't negate the other. They're just different depending mm-hmm. on who you're talking to. So reworking your your CV into a resume, it's not turning your back on everything. Mm. It's just saying, okay, I need to present myself a little bit differently. It's like exactly. changing your clothes or getting a haircut or something. You're mm-hmm. you're just showing a different side to people who are looking for specific things, whether it's a person who's looking at resumes or whether it's the algorithm that's looking for keywords in there. And you have to do that. You you can't continue to present as an academic person and expect to get a job in industry because it's a mismatch there. So mm. it's up to you to do the work to do that. Um, I think 
even five years ago, there were not a lot of resources in order mm-hmm. to help people do that. Now there are a lot more. We have the, the LCL has provided some, but there are lots more uh, Facebook groups and mm. places that you can go to get advice on how to craft your actual work resume in a way mm. that's going to at least get you callbacks, right? Yeah. Like that's that's what you want is is a callback. And then you have a little more of a chance to talk mm. about the things that you've done um, and things that maybe you omitted from your resume because exactly. it, it just made it more than a page long. So yeah. That, yeah. that's where you have to save that stuff for is, yeah. is when you get a contact. And even the language, Laurel, like, and I think that was the great contribution that you, well, of course, um, Alex Johnston, Nancy, Emily, you know, like Anne-Marie, it's all this community of fantastic people who very humanly came to us um, sharing the things that maybe uh, many people in academia hadn't shared with us, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, this is this is the human version of it. This is what you can do if life changes for you if someone tells you that you're not fit for this context like all this more human situations that you get in life um that was in my opinion that was the magic of those three weeks of 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 sharing knowledge and experiences it was a very human approach of okay this is what you can do these are the tiny little tweaks that you can do to your language, to your presentation, as you said before, Laurel, it's like, okay, how do you change your clothes? How you change your hair? That doesn't make you a different person. It's just like a different face of your personality, right? Mm-hmm. So um, to me, that was the magic of those three weeks because that's when I started to realize that maybe <laughs> there was a place um, for me outside academia. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a big question, what do you do at Amazon? Well, um, it's it's been an interesting journey, <laughs> especially imagine you get into uh, this group of people and, and you walk in with a huge PhD in your back. Like it's, I'm not the kind of person that I go with like, oh, I'm a PhD. No, like it's, uh, I understand um, people, we're just people, like we're all people, right? So it's, it's, it's this idea of getting into a group of um, fantastic human beings and then all of a sudden, many people making assumptions about yourself that you're not even making. But I get into this group of, um, it was very kind of mixed kind of um, personalities there at Amazon. And basically that was, um, how can I put it? It's it's working for NLU, NL, um, you know, natural language understanding, natural language processing. Um, in my particular case, um, I was, I've been contributing to transferring the model that Alexa in the US has to in this particular case, Spanish. So I've been um, working with the, you know, basically providing experiences to Alexa customers um, and, and provided the language kind of needed for Alexa to be doing X, Y, Z. And of, of course, localizing that um, into a Spanish locale or Spanish market, right? right? In this particular case was Spain, um, the US and Mexico. So that was the initial thing that we started doing. At the moment, we're doing something slightly different, uh, which is very much aligned with um, what I had been doing in the past in, in the, of these criticalities about ethical um, and responsible AI. Um, but that that has been my um, contribution to date. It's actually, it's interesting that this interview is happening today because I'm, I'm very close to, you know, my first anniversary. So, yeah. <laughs> mm, okay. Are, are you the only linguist on your team or are there other linguists? 
there are many linguists or okay. definitely people with similar backgrounds, so to speak. So, for example, in this particular case, we work with a team or we used to work, not anymore, as I mentioned before, but we used to work with a team in Turin, Italy. And um, many people in that team do have a very similar background to mine, like the same, very same degrees, et cetera, et cetera. The team in the US is definitely more um, varied, but it's also true that uh, most people have a BA in most cases, BA, uh, some cases, MA, um, in, in, in degrees related to languages and linguistics, yeah. So what you said there was also really interesting that you don't need to have a PhD like you were no. talking about before. So <sighs> that's very important for people to understand that even to get a job like the one you have, which is at Amazon, working on Alexa, working on fairly complicated, what we would call tech, mm. you don't have to have a PhD. Not necessarily, no. Yeah. And, and and I can tell you this, and also for people listening out there, like um, f- for entry positions, like you, um, I've I've had colleagues who had a journalism degree, or people who did a, a BA in linguistics or a BA in Spanish, and just with that, out of college, went into the very same team I am. Right. So, um. It's 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 not necessary, and that's something I always, you know, uh, also think to uh, this lovely community of of people doing linguistics outside academia. Many people reach out to me, and then they're curious. Oh, but do I have to go to graduate school to do a PhD to do something like you're doing? And I always tell them, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's it's not something that you have to do. And I know that's the case with different tech companies. Like I know the situation now is fairly peculiar uh, with all this um, situation that we have in. But it, it's true that um, with all these hiring processes kind of restart again, I, I highly doubt that uh, people will be looking after for, you know, looking for a, a PhD in people's in candidates applications, not necessarily. One of the conversations that I was listening to recently um, with Nora Diaz, who's a, mm-hmm. a translator, um, and she grew up in Mexico. She's bilingual. And one of the pieces of advice that she had, which I thought was really good, was it's it's about your skills. It doesn't mm. really matter what you call yourself. Mm-hmm. So even calling yourself a linguist isn't that important. Calling yourself a PhD, calling yourself a master's, mm. like those things don't matter as much as what skills you actually have. Mm-hmm. And maybe you have a lot of skills that you never really thought of as skills, mm-hmm. but they're very relevant to what employers are looking for. So I, I'm like you, I'm, I'm big on not labeling people. It's more mm. about what, what can you do? What can you bring to the employer to get the work done? That's what mm-hmm. has to happen, right? It's all about what kind of work can you do for them? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's why it's also key to share this knowledge with people. Like it's, it's, it's not really necessary to get into something that you're not particularly interested in, just thinking that that's what you'll need to get a job in, in a mm-hmm. tech company. Like that's, that's absolutely not the case. And in many cases, then you can have opportunities to get funded by the actual company to continue mm-hmm. with your schooling if you're interested yeah. in. Um, but that's, that's something that for someone with my um, background, I always tell people like, of course, if you have the chance and if you have the means, like uh, be it through public funding, be it through uh, family-wise, but if not, don't get yourself into the trap of, you know, this huge loans of mm-hmm. money just to get into graduate school when you 
are not really sure if that's what you want to do. Yeah, super important. Uh, having student loans is the worst because mm. uh, they'll follow you around for the rest of your life and mm. prevent you from actually doing things you want to do, like, oh, I don't know, buying a house or, yeah. you know, <laughs> things that are more important to you. Absolutely. So I, I agree 100%. And, and higher education is just becoming prohibitively expensive for so many mm. people. There are not that many programs that do funding mm -hmm. for PhDs anymore. Um, and again, the spots are just so few and far between. And then you don't really need a PhD mm -hmm. if you're going to look for something outside of academia. I agree. I agree. And I think that needs to be really, really communicated uh, and just, uh, you know, do as much as we can to make people aware of that's not always uh, what you need to do to actually end up in a position that you're fascinated by um, and, and you think it's this super skilled profile and, and it's it's not. I mean, if you do have this skill to learn, skill to adapt, skill mm -hmm. to, you know, like do things, um, it's, it's something that most, I would say most employers would actually um, value over having like a huge <laughs> collection of, sure. of degrees. Yeah. Yeah, I think that goes for just about anything in industry. As an employer myself, when mm -hmm. we hired new people, the choice was always between, well, do I hire somebody who already has all these skills and maybe is very expensive or might be set in their ways? Or am I going to hire someone who shows a capacity and a willingness to learn so mm -hmm. I can teach them things? And I think we always kind of came down on the side of hiring people who wanted to learn. And mm -hmm. that's what industry is partly about is you're always learning. You're always picking up new skills. You're never going to be at a point where you have all the skills. Mm. No one has yeah. all the skills. You're, you're constantly learning new things. And maybe that takes you in a different direction over time as well. I agree, Laurel. And let me tell you something like in my case, I could tell you that, as I said, my, my main drive, I, I was really interested. I think the field of linguistics is clearly shaped these days by artificial intelligence and it will yeah. be more in the future, right? So I had this curiosity to actually get to know what was going on. It is true that was a combination of that and a personal drive, but I can tell you that in my case, having a PhD has not been the best of things to have because mm. as I said before, like people make assumptions, right? Like you may go there with the humblest of approaches like, okay, I'm, I'm here to learn, but then whatever you do that kind of deviates a little bit, then it, it, all of a sudden, all this idea like, oh, well, but this is, you know, um, okay, here's here is the PhD saying. It's, it's, it's sometimes kind of a big bag that you have with you. Many people would think like having a PhD will always be beneficial. Mm -hmm. But I think if, if you're kind of starting a career in a field that you're interested in and you have the skills or most of the skills to, to, to get into that um, position, the PhD, it's, it's not always the best thing that you can have because then people kind of, kind of unavoidably place you in a box yeah. that sure, sometimes yeah. it's like, oh my gosh, you know, like I, I, can you please see me as someone who's just trying to learn and mm -hmm. who's interested in this field? And can you kind of stop seeing that I have a PhD in linguistics? Because maybe people would take things for granted. Like that's something that happened to me. Like, oh, well, you've got a PhD in linguistics. So I'm sure this is going to be very, you know, piece of cake for you. And I can tell you, Laurel, I really struggled at the beginning. <laughs> it was like, yeah. oh my gosh, like how do I, how do I, 
you know, understand all this really new world to me, right? So um, again, this is encouragement for people who do not have or not thinking to go for a PhD. Sometimes having it is not necessarily working to your benefit. Yeah, totally agree. And and I think too, because industry is learning slowly what linguistics mm-hmm. is, there mm-hmm. is also generally the assumption that if you have a PhD, you know everything about all aspects of linguistics, right? Mm, so, mm. you know, if you did a sociolinguistics PhD exactly. and then people are coming and asking you about like some phonological theory, it's like, hey, man, that's not my area. Like, exactly. I know a little <laughs> because I had to take those classes, but I am not the person that mm. you want for this thing. And mm. I do think that there is kind of an attitude like, well, you should, right? You've got a PhD. Mm. You should know yeah. everything that there is to know about every aspect of linguistics. Yeah. So, educating people that that is not the case is something that we will have to continue to do over time that yeah. people specialize and they specialize for a reason and no nobody's going to know everything mm-hmm. so um here you are in your career mm-hmm. you're doing things if you could give yourself one piece of advice from say five or six years ago from the place you are now what do you think that <laughs> might be oh wow that's that's a Fantastic question. I think that will be just relax. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's a great piece of advice. (laughs) I think that would be it. Yeah. Because um, again, Laurel, and that's that's funny because that that has been my approach overall, but um it's it's fascinating. Sometimes we just get stuck in these plans that we try to make sense for us, right? Like, oh, okay, I'm going to be here. I'm going to go there. I'm just, uh, after that, I'll do this. I'll do that. And then life has this fantastic ability to turn everything upside down. And mm-hmm. and, and, and to me, that's beautiful, right? Like in, 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 in this particular case was a joyful occasion. Like it was like, okay, uh, something, I'm, I'm seeing something beautiful. Um, my life is, is giving me, it's leading towards, but in some cases it's not necessarily that joyful. And I, I, and I think that all this kind of arrangements and plans and fixed ideas that we create for ourselves, it takes a day to kind of break everything and smash it into pieces and then just realize yeah. that it's the unexpected so um all this worrying all this kind of uh, planning in advance and, and worrying over worrying and complicating yourself too much i don't think that makes uh, sense at all like it's great mm-hmm. to have like a general idea of, of um okay this is what i'm planning to do but I would say that having this ability to kind of be prepared to whatever might be coming in your life and have the resilience and the the attitude that you need to have to um, endure and just be there um, regardless of the circumstances, I think that's that's key to have and key to train. And, and sometimes when you're doing your, um, your 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 studies, your undergrad, your graduate degrees, I think we just get to stuck into um the final destination we forget mm-hmm. about the ride in itself right so um yeah that that would be something i would say to myself five years ago like mm-hmm. okay just relax uh you know life life has very exciting things for you mm-hmm. and and i uh, just you know uh take them as they come 
Yeah, I think that's great. And it, it gets back to what you were saying before about the your career path is probably going to be nonlinear. And that's yeah. fine. It doesn't have to be linear. I mean, life is nonlinear to, to a great extent. Stuff happens. It just, you got to go with it and not fight against it because that's going to make you deeply unhappy if you're yeah. trying to arrange things to a certain pattern. Life will just not cooperate with you. Things, mm. things will happen. Who could have predicted COVID, right? Exactly. Really, truly predicted the way it was going to happen. And then who knows what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years? Who could have said, you know, 2023 is going to be the year when AI affects everything. Mm. And maybe it'll be completely different in a year. Maybe all mm. of that stuff will have burned itself out or not. Nobody knows. Mm -hmm. So you just got to be open and flexible. And I actually think our linguistic training helps in that area because exactly. there's so many unexpected things you find in linguistics, right? We're mm -hmm. always trying to make order out of it, but because something is not orderly, it doesn't mean it's bad. You're just mm -hmm. going, oh, well, now I need to think about this new thing and how does that fit in and how can I try to explain it? And that's, that's part of the joy of doing linguistics is mm -hmm. finding things that make you go, huh, that's weird. <laughs> I got to look into that some more. What's that about? <laughs> I completely agree. And I think that's beautiful. And I also think that's why we're people who, um, in my experience, and I know that <laughs> um, we are all linguists or kind of closely connected to the idea of languages and linguistics, right? But but I think we're people who adapt. I think we're, we're yeah. people who kind of find a way. As I, I completely agree with what you said. Like, okay, yes, language... Some people would think that it's a very linear thing, like very, um, you know. Uh, but it's it's full of it's full of new things all the time. It's a very mm -hmm. it's very alive. It's changing every day, right? So, mm -hmm. I think we're very suitable. We're very suited to, um, you know, adapting and and changing to whatever comes to us, right? So, yeah, I I completely agree with you in that idea, and I think for me having understood and actually coming to terms with the idea that my path will not be linear has been a huge relief. Like mm -hmm. now I don't feel this tension of having to follow specific guidelines like, oh, um, oh so how is it that you spend eight years doing a postdoc? And then people start questioning. It's like, look, life happens, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's the, um, you know, the unpredictable, the unpredicted character of it that uh, yeah. that in a way takes us to unexpected ways and unexpected moments and places so um that has given me a lot of mental mental peace so to speak that's great that's fantastic um i think this is a good place to wrap it up mm -hmm. i want to ask if it's okay for people to contact you via linkedin because i'd like to put your linkedin profile okay mm -hmm. so um folks can get in touch and this is one of the things, of course, that we've tried to do through LCL and other ways is for those of us who are employed outside academia is to pay it forward to students mm -hmm. so that they have an easier time than we did when we were looking for mm -hmm. jobs. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, of course, I'm, I'm happy. Like people, I always tell people like it's it's sometimes messy just to schedule things, but I'm very happy to, um, you know, to get into informational interviews, just like mm -hmm. chat for about 20 minutes or just some extension of messages just to to share my knowledge, my 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 experience, because it's a personal thing, right? Like it, it doesn't apply yeah. to everyone. It's it's never the same for everyone. But if someone feels there is a connection or something that resonates with them, um, I'm really happy to to get in touch and just um, share my insight into this. 
Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been fantastic. And I'm so glad we got to cover all of the things that we did. Getting into the the soft, squishy stuff is just so important. This has been yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Laurel. It's 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 fantastic. I, I loved the way you were leading the interview. It's a fascinating um way to you know, reflect upon my own journey and just uh, be more aware of it. So I very much thank you for that and, and for the opportunity and for the invitation. So yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistic students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.